and welcome back to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Kamee. Before we get started with this week's bonus episode recorded live in London last week at the Cloud and Cybersecurity Expo, I did want to take a moment to say that our hearts are out to our compatriots and friends in New Zealand. Um, social media will be in the news for the next foreseeable future, whether it is election meddling or for the quick um, and virulent propagation of uh, violent and hateful content. Um, but that being said, technology is a force and can be used for good and for evil. And we see ourselves on the side of good. And in the meantime, our deepest sympathies to those in Christchurch and New Zealand as a whole. So this week's guest is Rowena Fielding, Senior Data Protection Lead at Protecture in the UK. Um, she is a force to be reckoned with. No holds barred and unafraid to fight very passionately for privacy and data protection. She's also hilarious and extremely charming. I had a pleasure talking with her at our booth um, at the expo and had a lot of laughs. And our conversation ranged from what you might consider the familiar, like GDPR, all the way to <laughs> the uh, hilarious job title that she would love to award herself. Uh, we were also pleased to have her on a panel uh, with Raj Samani of McAfee and Javad Malik of Alien Vault. Um, we should have video of that soon. Um, it was an, it was a fantastic panel. And I hope our listeners got a lot out of it, but we will have it readily available for all very soon. But without further ado, let's get into it with Rowena Fielding. Hey, so we are here live at the Cloud and Cybersecurity Expo in London with Rowena Fielding, Senior Data Protection Lead for Protecture. Hello there. Hello, George. How are you? All right. Um, why don't we start with the basics? Um, you are seen as an industry expert in data privacy. How did you start on that journey? How do we, how do we get to where we are today to, to miss IG geek? Well, I was an IT geek, and then I was an IT security geek, and then I broadened my horizons and realized that there were other principles involved and moved into data protection about 10 years ago now. When no one was talking about data protection. Before it was sexy. <laughs> yes. I was there before it was cool. Oh, yeah. Hipster data protection girl. That's me. So was that uh, a function of you seeing either one where the technology was headed or what the technology could do that sparked your interest in, in data protection and privacy? Interestingly, it was, it was actually neither. The reason I got into data protection was because um, a lot of the questions that I was getting in my role as information security manager were actually privacy and records management uh, questions. And in order to answer them properly, because I'm the sort of person who can't bear to not do anything properly. Like Good on you. Control freak. Yeah. Um, I, I decided to go and, and start reading up about this, and I, I found it was absolutely fascinating. Interesting. Was that because the organizations you were working with were 
had a higher like compliance or regulatory burden? Yes, at the time I was working for a major IT services provider and I was uh, embedded in one of the central government accounts. Ah. So yeah, the questions were coming from you know the HR department of a, um, a large government department. So they sort of had to get things right. Right. Well, also good on them for understanding that early days rather than getting caught behind the breach. And I don't saying, know if they took my advice, but ah, they certainly well, asked for they it. they asked for it. Well, <laughs> that's all they can do. Um, great. So can you tell us a little bit about what Protecture does? I noticed it has a .org domain, so I was wondering if it was nonprofit or advisory. It's not nonprofit. We are a commercial organization, uh, but we do have a very large client base in the nonprofit sector. Oh. Um, we, we're basically uh, data protection geeks and um, people uh, come to us for advice, support, training, guidance, rescue. Rescue. <laughs> um, and ideally, in a, in a perfect world, they would come to you before they built the thing, <laughs> before they designed the w data capture uh, interface, right? Or is it a lot of post sort of reactive positioning? Um, interesting question. I, I think there's, there's a wide range. There's a wide spectrum. I mean, we do pick up uh, business where people need pulling out of a, a hole that they've got themselves <laughs> into. Um, but we also have a lot of clients who come to us because they want to get things right from the outset. And oh, that's one of the benefits of working with the nonprofit sector. They genuinely have uh, a real will to do things in a way that's ethical. I mean, maybe some might argue that because they're nonprofits, they have a their baseline for ethical behavior is already much higher. Well, there, there's an argument to be had there. <laughs> Personally, I wouldn't want to comment. Um, but yes, I mean, they, they can't buy back customer loyalty with right. vouchers. You know, right. if somebody decides to stop donating to a cause because the organizations annoyed them, there's pretty much nothing you can do to, right. to get them back. So they have to be sort of squeaky clean up front and be trustworthy and, and give that feel-good feeling. Yes. Um, and not just look like they're doing it, but actually be able to, you know, walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Yes, good point, because I think um, a lot of people are willing to play fast and loose with data. Well, maybe not so much now in the EU because of GDPR, but because they know, um, one, will survive, two... You know, we sell groceries or we sell shirt. Like, there's sort of a client base that's always going to be there versus this. I absolutely need everything is predicated on the reputation of that organization. Yes, absolutely. People have very short term memories when it comes to that sort of thing as well, though. Right. Well, it's interesting because we've seen um, data recently from a from a marketing research survey to to kind of peg down uh, and quantify brand reputation. And, and they found, um, this was the Forbes Accountability Project, found mm -hmm. that enterprise value, uh, sorry, brand value is 19% of enterprise value. So I, I think if you went to the board and said, look, one fifth of your stock price is uh, part of your brand and your brand is inevitably tarnished by any sort of data breach that might raise the stakes a bit. Uh, I think that's that's probably true, and I don't think it's just about breaches either. Um, I mean, look, for example, at all of the uh, hot water that Facebook is in right. at the moment. 
um, a lot of the stuff that they do that people object to is, is actually their business model and overreach involved. Right, right. And so, uh, yeah, and, and their stock has obviously taken a, a bit of a kicking lately. <laughs> right. and, uh, I'm trying not to smile and shine for it here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yes. Um, cool. So I one thing that we've noticed here uh, at this particular conference in London is when we talk cybersecurity for social media, when we talk... Um, about our archiving compliance information governance capabilities, there's not a lot of education needed. It seems like this audience is more primed and ready to understand that there is something that needs to be done in social. Uh, and I would guess I was, I was curious as to if somebody told me yesterday that they thought it's because GDPR put financial stakes on the table that now everyone, when you say social and security, it was like a little bit of a closer. Sometimes we have to work a little bit harder in other countries, but the audience here doesn't seem to have the same, it doesn't take as long to get, get through to them. Well, this is a cloud and cybersecurity summit, so I think most people coming here are going to be in that kind of there needs to be a security considerations mindset anyway. So Well, you'd be surprised. Well, yeah, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe true. Um, what... Um, what I kind of find with uh, technical and, and information security people is that um, they see data protection solely in terms of information security, which you know is, is fairly natural because that's what they do. Mm. Um, but often to the exclusion and the detriment of the other data protection principles like fairness and right. transparency and you know, adequacy of data and how long you keep it for. Right. Um, so... Um, while there is awareness that's very high in the UK and in the tech industry, actual understanding of the requirements of data protection law is, is still pretty dismal. Oh, okay. <laughs> Beyond right. security, that is. Right. And I suppose uh, this being Wednesday after the second failed vote, <laughs> um, I guess there's the obvious question of... Do you have an opinion as to whether any sort of Brexit will have implications for UK participation in GDPR or other privacy regulations? Well, there, there, there will obviously be implications because the GDPR um, applies to EU member states, mm. but we anticipated that. We came up with our own version, which uh, takes the GDPR and puts it into domestic law, albeit with a few tweaks. Um, however, in order for us to be considered a safe destination for personal data from the rest of Europe's point of view, we would need to have a finding of adequacy, adequacy for respect for human rights and freedoms in relation to data. Uh, and that's a long process and it can't be kicked off until after we've exited the European Union. It can't start now. Right. So there's going to be a period of limbo. Um, and whether or not we'll even get adequacy is uh, is a question that, that's batted around data protection circles quite a lot. There's quite a lot of people who feel that we absolutely shouldn't get adequacy because actually our, our government record on human rights and uh, data protection and freedom is not really all that wonderful when mm. you compare it to you know the, the ideals in the UN Convention of Human Rights. Right. Well, I don't know that there's any country that stands up to Norway's to pretty good. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair, fair. Um, yes, and I imagine the, the complexity of the organizations that are either based in Europe 
and do business in London or the reverse. Um, when you have this strange uh, mix of nationalism and politics and that the laws then apply to nation states, but the business doesn't really adhere to those boundaries. You have information flowing between accounts in English servers that is about customers in Greece or uh, customers in France. Is there... I suppose there's no easy way to reconcile. It's very complex. I mean, there are options for organizations to take. And the one that uh, a lot of people are, are kind of heading towards is the, the easy version, as it were, um, mm. is to put in place uh, EU model contract clauses. Um, so essentially legally binding agreements with uh, other parties and other countries that say you will do it like right. this. Um, also, uh, multinational uh, organizations can put in what's called binding corporate rules, which mm -hmm. is kind of set of standards that everybody across the whole organization has to follow no matter where they are. Um. And they have to be approved by a national regulator. Um, and that's quite an expensive and long process. So right. I don't, don't think there'll be too many of those uh, as an option for small and medium enterprises. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of this um, this complexity, this paperwork, this lawyering uh, it sort of misses the point right. of gdpr which is essentially don't be a git right <laughs> can we quote you on absolutely that? you're more yeah. than welcome to yes. yeah the whole thing pretty much boils down to don't be a git uh, we're legislating decency <laughs> that's essentially what it is i mean yes. gdpr is based on on human rights law and human right to to privacy freedom of association opinion right. all that stuff so um yeah i think um a lot of organizations get are too concerned with the form of what they're doing uh -huh. um, and not nearly concerned enough about the function. Brilliant. Yes. Um, yeah, we, we've said that uh, sometimes it feels in what better setting than this loud conference um, that it's very easy to get stuck in the weeds. You're in it every day, so you get enamored with shiny objects, new capabilities, but like at the at functionally security should not ever be playing catch up to the business right it's supposed to be like a if you proactively apply security then you're not in danger of one being caught on the back foot or, or two you might have put more thought into how you're handling data pii things like that so i was wondering if you have any opinions on incorporating data protection structures from the beginning rather than either in the middle or at the end when compliance raises a flag and says, by the way, you did this wrong. Yes. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, the GDPR brings in the uh, the concept of data protection by design and by default, yes. which is basically an attitude to um, everything you do at every point you do it. Right. Is, are you basically checking you're not being a git? <laughs> and, uh, and, and can, if, can somebody be called like chief git checker i would love that job role that sounds amazing <laughs> which no git hunter general that's there it there we go yes brilliant yes <laughs> yeah so um that is a requirement of law so um even aside from whether or not it's beneficial from a commercial sense it's a compliance requirement. You, you don't really get to, to um, have a choice. You've got right. to be doing it or you're going to get into trouble. Yes. Uh, back in the real world, um, I think 
there's always going to be an arms race between uh, innovation and good behavior. Mm -hmm. There always has been in the whole history of humankind. And, and social media as a as an entire industry, when you know Mark Zuckerberg was coding Facebook in his dorm room, could he possibly have foreseen? You know, he didn't even have like an advertising model, so he didn't. You know, he was sort of like jumping on these these trains, and so it's. I think we're at a, an interesting point where the data privacy and data protection debate is so strong that, one, it's applying great force to existing industries, but we may be at a point where today, the people who are building startups today, you know, they may be starting from a better and stronger point. I hope so. I mean, really, it comes down to uh, differences in, in fundamental values mm -hmm. um, and you know, different uh, cultures, different nations all across the world. They, they've got different attitudes and different right. values. And um, this is very much a sort of um, a human rights based social uh, benefit, um, collective good set of values pushing back against a very individualist uh competitive mm. uh must get ahead of the rest type and uh, corporate right. so capitalist and, and value. yes the, yes, the yeah. commodification of, yeah. of personal data. so um it's, it's an interesting one because nobody is ever going to uh, agree all on the same approach right um i think the, the constantly shifting equilibrium between the two is is the natural state of things you know that innovation will push forward uh, and um, people who are concerned about you know, effects on real human beings will pull pull it back, and then right. innovation. Will... So it'll carry on like that, yeah, and I, I think that that's necessary. Yeah, and it's a good tension because mm. uh, at the at a technological level, you tend to see the technology and not the people. Oh, definitely. Right. It is about the thing which like it or not creates a distance that dehumanizes and so it's sort of like incumbent upon the humanists to not pull them back into place but you need that tug of war to keep the flag in the middle yeah you know i mean in really simple reductive terms it's like an angel and a devil on your shoulder right. the devil's going you know naturally push, you're the angel fast. well i wouldn't go that far <laughs> but uh, you know the one side is saying you know like move fast and break things yes and the other side is saying well hang on a minute real people human lives how would you feel if that happened to you right. let's let's not be a git about this right fail fail fast oh but that was my data that you failed with and well now it's out there <laughs> absolutely and and not um not just again not just in terms of breaches so I'll give you an example the um that uh, there was a big kerfuffle a while back where some uh housing charity no what was it uh, some some human rights type uh social uh support charities discovered that uh facebook's targeted advertising features were being used to exclude certain demographics yes. from seeing certain uh, adverts and Stop so on. well it's it's the natural evolution of this mm -hmm. kind of capability if there isn't um you know somebody with authority in the organization putting a break on and saying somebody who's like eeyore basically going yeah. well, what what's <laughs> yes. the worst that could happen and so you just went from eeyore you just went from <laughs> angel to eeyore <laughs> eeyore with a halo <laughs> i like this image um <laughs> yes i yeah i think that's that sounds right that you um push forward and then someone is there to to check that and push back i think that's i mean that's the it's almost like i mean if i want to get really 
ostentatious. Oh, <laughs> it's, go on. <laughs> it's like a Hegelian dialectic, right? You mm, have the, yeah. the orthodoxy and then the revision that has to push back to get to some sort of uh, harmony. Absolutely. I mean, uh, look at any technology that humanity's developed. Take cars, for example. Yeah. When cars, when the internal combustion engine was invented, it was the preserve of rich industrialists. Yes. Um, and these people who had access to cars drove them wherever they like, squashed a whole load of people, um, didn't really care. And then cars became available to mass market and it was chaos. There you know, no particular rules or safety standards. A lot of people got hurt and a lot of people died. Yes. Um, and that's how human societies learn. We, ha- we always sacrifice other people in order to learn the hard way. That's just how human beings roll. So um, really, for me... Um, these days, my sort of my, my reason for <laughs> getting up and going to work every day is is helping people to uh, try and protect themselves and each other from being the people who are the human <laughs> sacrifices. Oh, well put, well put. Um, okay, and we've so we've talked with some other people who are focused on on privacy, and they have tried to wrestle with the market imperative for the commodification of data and you know the consent argument like what am i willing to give in exchange for what have you um and the topic of kind of a data bank has come up like if you could assign a value to certain types of data okay well <laughs> yeah i'm making faces our listeners can't see you but i will take the, the eye roll as an indication that you have an opinion on this subject this is why i don't play poker <laughs> um yeah absolutely i mean the thing is that uh the right to privacy the entitlement to to have your own space in your head and in, in your conversations is a fundamental human right which means straight away no commodification of that. I mean, right. you can commodify the convenience factor. Mm-hmm. So um, you can you know, make it easier for people to, uh, if they choose to, make that trade-off. Um, but if you start from the assumption that that trade-off has to be made, then it's, it's, it's not the right thing to do, I don't think. It, uh, people who are not wealthy, people who are not able-bodied, people who are not um, of uh, cis het- vanilla sexuality they're the people that are going to be thrown on the bonfire first and you know call me um an idealist but i don't really like that kind of thing (laughs) right right yes not not so i think um setting assigning uh monetary values to data is a very dangerous and reductive thing because Mm -hmm. um the degree to which um a use or an abuse of data uh, affects the individual is so much to do with context. So, for example, the Dean Street Clinic breach that happened in the UK a few years back, it was a sexual health clinic, Mm -hmm. and they sent out an email advertising their HIV services, and they put everybody's email addresses in the... Yeah, absolutely, eye roll. what my mother does. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like, Mom, BCC, please. With the result that the inference was made that all of the recipients were people who were living with HIV, which wasn't the case anyway, but that's how it was reported. Um, And it was a really stark reminder that... Even though it was just an email address that got out there, there the is a context in which yes. it appeared was massively significant. And so, a th- real world implications, real not just world like harms. A, yeah, yeah, it's not just a, a digital consequence. No. It was a, a social stigma. It's a whatever attached. So losing to your job, right. being disowned by your family, that sort right. of thing. In some communities, yeah. So, um, I think it's very dangerous to try and put monetary values on data 
because of that. It ignores context, and context is everything when it comes to privacy. Right, right. Okay. Yes. So um, we're now at this point where we're trying to safeguard, no pun intended, uh, information. Um, are we there? Or are we trying to safeguard people's rights and freedoms? Because there they're actually go. two completely different oh, yes. things. Let's have that. Please yeah. elaborate. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, one of the, the big differences between the, the discipline of information security and the discipline of data protection is that the focus is in completely different places. Information mm-hmm. security is first and foremost about protecting the organization's assets. Data protection is about protecting the rights and freedoms of the living individuals that the data relates to. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, there is a a complete kind of um, difference of of focus, difference of direction there. There are definitely areas of overlap uh, because if what's good for the individuals is good for the organization, then um, data protection will become interesting. Um, But I think it's very, very important not to confuse the two uh, because inevitably in my experience when you do start confusing the two the uh, corporate financial imperative will drown out the human rights and freedoms aspect that is tricky oh yeah um (laughs) mostly because it it feels like the entire history of commerce is wrapped up in that in that debate yeah absolutely i mean uh if you look at the slave trade for example Um, It was making a lot of people money. And so there was a huge amount of um, justification of that. Uh, A lot of people didn't want it to stop. But in the end, the the, the side, the people said that, you know, human rights, human dignity, Mm -hmm. slavery is bad, one, which is nice. Right. and then everybody kind of dusted off their hands, went, right, we're all wonderful people now. Everything we do from this point onwards is perfect. No, we're still having um, a lot of very similar um, debates um, now about, you know, to what extent should individuals be um, able to make their own decisions? Mm-hmm. And if there's money in manipulating people's decisions, then obviously people are going to do that because right. money's what makes the world go round in, mm-hmm. in most places. But... It's that that uh, old thing with Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, you know, just because they could, they didn't stop to think about whether or not they should. Right. Um, and and so yeah, there are always it's like going back to that tension between innovation, competition, um, moving fast, getting ahead of the game, and pulling back on that and going, well, actually, you know, if you do that, you might end up making this world a hellish dystopia for everybody. Are you really okay with that? Right. Do you see, um, we talked about this inflection point that if this is the zeitgeist right now, this is the lively debate that we're having around data protection and, and privacy, that the startups born today might be born with a better DNA, so to speak, than, than uh, the startups of the past. Do you see a world in which the companies that value privacy and, and uh, demonstrate that openly gain a competitive advantage is is that unique to a european set of values or is that something that i mean i mean i'm asking you to speculate on economic <laughs> theory but it, is, is that a thing that could that could drive a business is is how well it manages um 
That's an interesting question. I think, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to demonstrate that the more um, technologically developed, the more um, socially um, responsible, the more um, civilized, this is the word we tend to use, a society is, then uh, these things kind of come along behind that. Mm -hmm. So perhaps there is an argument to say that the, the innovation comes first because then when people are equipped with education and leisure time, um, then that's when they start fighting for rights and freedoms. Uh, if everybody's living hand to mouth, then nobody's really got time for that sort of thing. Right. So um, at the moment, we've got a scenario where we've got um, sort of Western centers of uh, the developed world with Europe being one and the US being another. Mm -hmm. And even the US is... is um, getting to a point where they're thinking, well, actually, are we actually destroying social fabric here right. with this sort of cutthroat surveillance capitalism approach? Mm -hmm. And that's a, a debate they have to have among themselves. In Europe, we have human rights uh, law and data protection law because of all the awful things that happened in World War II that right. we've learned from. Yes. So, There's a very different attitude toward yeah, surveillance. Huge cultural difference. And having to tell people... Uh, what religion you are, um, you know, what minority group you belong to. Those yeah. lists have been affected to great uh, tragedy. Yeah, so. absolutely. And that's why there, um, there are a lot more stringent rules on when you can even have that information and what you can do mm -hmm. with it. Um, and then you've got kind of uh, the, the sort of Eastern economies where uh, South Korea is, is the most technologically advanced um, mm -hmm. interconnected society. Um, but they're having a lot of uh, social problems because of that. And then you've got China with the whole social credit thing, which is right. the dystopian dictator's absolute birthday cake. Yes, right. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, yeah, I mean, to, to us, it kind of looks like the worst thing on earth. Right. Um, setting aside differences in philosophy, I mean, I don't think we want to go down that route. No. But no. we're actually going down that route mm -hmm. anyway. It's just we're going down that route unofficially. Um, so instead of the state going, okay, this is how it's going to be, we're going to set the criteria, we're going to set the values, we're going to keep control of that, we've got a whole load of corporate entities doing that and converging on a set of values which are very much reflective of the um, the demographics of the people writing the code, which mm. is, you know, 30s yes. white male. It's, it's all, <laughs> yes, we've talked about um, feed feedback loops, yeah. you know, structural inequities. When I, I worked for a global marketing agency and as someone who is half Japanese, I was kind of I was at one point one of the eight people of color in that organization, <laughs> which is saying something. And uh, principally because I'd never thought of myself as a person of color until I was in that agency. Um, but I remember talking with the recruiting department and saying, you know, you know, we've got one, we have to address this because it's a problem. When, when you bring anyone of color around the office for a tour, they pretty much see I don't belong here. Yeah. And then they said, well, we're, we're trying. We just go to these universities. And I said, but have you looked at the demographics of those universities? Are you simply just... They pull from a certain segment. The business schools within those pull from a certain segment. You're just sort of compounding these problems. You need to go to different sources. I think we... I mean, to be fair, I think we have the same problem in cybersecurity in terms of, you know, 
how people are routed in university to whatever field. Um, but yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense in terms of compounding inequity yeah. uh, over and over again. And the other thing about uh, sort of big data analytics, algorithmic decision making is where those algorithms are uh, fed training data, yes. which is uh, not sufficiently diverse. Right. Um, but also the, the whole obsession with metrics, measures, management analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they say, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure. But there is a point, I think, at which um, when the metrics have become more important than the actual outcome. And I think we're at, we're long past that point now. Right. Um, you know, there, there are people... There are decisions being made which are bad decisions and everybody knows it, but that's what the KPIs require. Right. <laughs> it's like the, the, yeah, the, the, cart, um, the, the cart leading the horse, which is just right. bonkers. Um, so I think there's a lot of room for innovation and not necessarily in, in technological sense, but, but in a, a thinking sense and thinking, well, do you know what? If actually, if, if, if it works to put a bunch of diverse people in a room together, um, and leave them alone, and then they come out in six months with something amazing. Let's just do that. <laughs> yes, let's let's do more of the thing that works. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll end on this note. Um, we've covered dystopian society. We've covered hellscape. <laughs> we've covered data breaches. Um, at this point, do you live with optimism or pessimism? <laughs> um. I am one of life's pessimists and cynics. And the reason for that is that I'm actually a very sensitive, delicate little flower. Okay. And, I don't, <laughs> and I, I don't handle you know, disappointment and sadness very well. So if I approach everything with it's all going to go horribly wrong, I'm A, usually right. B, you haven't uh, sometimes, set the expectations. Yeah, exactly. B, sometimes pleasantly surprised. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm all for um, approaching things with this is the worst that could happen and then, oh, it's not that bad. But I think society needs a mixture of people like me and, you know, Pollyanna's dewy-eyed, sunny optimists who think that the whole world is a nice place of kittens and puppies and flowers. Don't um, forget unicorns and rainbows. And unicorns yes. and rainbows, absolutely. So so that we can all, you know, balance off each other and, and get to a happy medium because that's that's what the whole universe is about, isn't it? Shifting equilibriums. That's right. So great. Perfect place to end. <laughs> we should end on balance and, and yes. equilibrium. <laughs> Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, we look forward to hearing more on the panel later today. Likewise. Thanks very much, George. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into our conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to Rowena as much as I enjoyed talking with her last week. She was a delight. Um, welcome any and every opportunity to talk with her again. Um, Some other stories we are following this week. Uh, During last week's global outages uh, of WhatsApp and Facebook, turns out that Telegram reaped the rewards of those technical difficulties and increased their user base by 3 million people. Not too shabby. Um, I'm sure that Telegram and um, Signal and some other messaging apps will continue to try and fight for uh, users uh, against the global giant that is WhatsApp. And it remains to be seen what the implications are for Facebook's uh, message earlier this month about rolling 
WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger together into sort of one global privacy-oriented encrypted messaging platform. Um, I guess that depends on where your loyalties lie with respect to to Facebook, but I, I presume that will be an ongoing development. Uh, another story we are following is the collaboration platform Wire came back with the results of its annual survey of business executives. And it turns out that 92% of those surveyed agree that collaboration tools are best for work communications. Um, and what we're seeing is possibly a larger uh, demographic shift at, at work. So no pun intended, as more younger users come into the workforce, those who are more comfortable with instant messaging platforms, we may be seeing the displacement of email as the primary internal communications um, for uh, companies. And of course, that presents its own security challenges, just as uh, email did many years ago, many decades at this point. Um, and so it remains to be seen how workforces will adapt to these new changes in company culture and communication patterns. But what doesn't change is the need to protect those communications, uh, both from an IP perspective, from things being discussed internally about the company, and from a cybersecurity perspective from outbound and inbound threats. So I encourage you to look it up. In the meantime... Stay safe out there on social and digital, and we will see you in two weeks when our guest will be Peter Horst, former CMO of Ameritrade, Capital One, and Hershey's. The man has seen a lot and has a new book out on how to manage brands in the era of fake news. It's a really exciting interview. Come back. We'll see you then. 